which we longingly wait for in the new heavens and the new earth, that it might give us joy, that it might encourage us, O Lord, to patiently persevere, to press through, Lord, in faith through all things for the honor and the glory of Christ. Lord, for his truly is the kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Last week, we began chapter 21 regarding the new heavens and new earth and had mentioned at the time, and I'll say it again, it's all great from here. Not that what comes before this isn't great. We see the justice of God. We see the vindication of the bride of Christ. We see God's righteous judgment in the great white throne. We see the redemption of his people. And as we looked at the first uh, nine verses, I'm sorry, the first eight verses last week of chapter 21, we see the new city, Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. The tabernacle of God is with men and he shall dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and their God. For as verse one says, there is a new heaven and a new earth. This is our blessed hope in the coming of Jesus Christ. The truths before us from here to the end of Revelation should encourage us in the great truths of our faith. It should encourage us in dark times. It should encourage us in the struggles through which we go in this present life for the redemption of Christ. And by redemption here, I mean the full redemption of Christ, the redemption of the body and the establishment of new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells is coming with our Lord. These are truths today that I, I think if, if you were on our Wednesday evening uh, meeting, we, we talked about some of the trends going through some of our reformed circles that actually are denying the bodily second coming of Jesus Christ. It amazes me how many fads and novelties flow in and out of our churches. Uh, it truly does. We talked about what we call full preterism on Wednesday evening, that all the prophecies in the Bible were fulfilled in A.D. 70, and there is no bodily second coming of Jesus Christ. The resurrection has already happened. When did it happen in A.D. 70? It is just a spiritual resurrection, and that world to which we go in spirit is that world in which is eternity. There is no redemption then of the cosmos. There is no new heavens and a new earth in any sense that Christian orthodoxy has understood it throughout the ages. I think this is a pernicious heresy that is rising up within our circles. And I'm not going to take a whole lot of time on that this morning, but simply to, if you weren't there Wednesday, to make you aware that it is a thing and to briefly just address this history we've had in Reformed churches with a Reformed resurgence, we have seen all kinds of novelties come and go in our circles. It's, it's like when it comes to theological novelty and invention and deviation from orthodoxy, the churches that I thought would be the most impervious to it have really been hit the hardest throughout my lifetime. Which, which is amazing. And some people would fault reform theology for that. They would say, look at how many heresies spring from your midst. You guys must be doing something wrong. The problem I have with that is all of them, every last one, all these heretical fads we've seen come and go, have all been contrary to what we confess. It's not taking the doctrines of our confessions that we say we are settled on these matters and taking them to some heretical conclusion or something, it's just outright rejecting the truths that we are supposed to have said we agree that these things are actually taught in the scripture. So just something to take note of as the present controversy happens. If, if you haven't seen that yet, you probably will, because every time things pop up like this, it sort of becomes a thing and we have to deal with it. Eventually, I'm, I, no doubt, we'll probably have somebody uh, come into our midst who is caught up in all of that. It never seems to fail. But the second coming of Jesus Christ is a very important doctrine. And it didn't simply happen in AD 70. 
If you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, AD 70, I'm talking about the year, 70 AD, the year that Titus Vespasian and the Roman legions came to Jerusalem in the Jewish rebellion and sacked the city and destroyed the temple. It has not stood to this day. I do affirm there are biblical prophecies that talk about that. I do affirm that that was the formal end of the Jewish state and the formal ending of the Mosaic economy with the temple and that entire cultic system destroyed, never to be rebuilt again. It is a significant period in redemptive history. However, the scriptures aren't all about that. As we've seen already in this study, Jesus is coming back. As the angel said, as Christ ascended into the heavens in the clouds bodily, that same body with the holes in his hands and side, that same body with which he partook of fish beside the Sea of Galilee with his disciples, the angel said, in like manner as you see him go, he will return again. I'll paraphrase that, but that's what he said. Christ is returning, and with Christ is the glorification of the body. We shall be called to meet him in the air and changed in the twinkling of an eye and experience that complete redemption that's ours in Christ. He did not just come to save your soul, but you are both soul and body. A human being is not just an immaterial being, the soul. We are both, and Christ has redeemed all of us. And as we've seen from the scriptures, there is that resurrection of the dead and the glorification of the saints, where he doesn't just leave us back in this body as it is, but scripture, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, it's a spiritual body that we reserve, that we receive. Some heretics take that and say, it's not a material body. See, it's a spiritual body. It's not what Paul means. It's a spiritual body in that it is not at war with the spirit. It is spiritual because it will be completely aligned with the spirit. Right now, there is this war between flesh, as the Bible calls it, and spirit. But in the resurrection, that war is over. The effects of sin upon our mortal bodies and that part of our being will be completely um, removed. We will be glorified. Our bodies, our material bodies, will be in perfect alignment with our spiritual selves, with the Spirit of God, even. And what a glorious truth that is. <clears throat> but it's not just we as individuals that will benefit from the second coming of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to the Romans and says that the entire creation groans under sin, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. There is also a redemption then of the cosmos, the creation. The creation that groans under sin isn't going to continue to groan under sin forever and spirits pop off to heaven at death and that's it, end of the story. But there will be an end to sin in the world. An end to sin in the creation. The only place that sin will exist is in the fires of hell where justice will be poured upon it. We've already seen that in our text. It's one thing to say the body will be redeemed and glorified. And it is a, another glorious truth to also add to that, and so will the earth. So will the place of the dwelling of glorified saints. And that's what the text here uh, draws our attention to in the holy city, the new Jerusalem come down from God out of heaven. In verse 9, our text continues and says, And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. Now this is one of the angels, it says, who had of this, one of the seven vials, one of those last horrendous judgments poured out upon the earth. If you remember, the, uh, the vials or the bowls, they were the worst uh, descriptions of judgment of the various cycles of judgment. This angel, this bringer of doom to sinners now has something glorious to show. Glorious in that it is positive for the saints and to our eternal well-being. 
the bride, the lamb's wife. Now, as we think about the bride, the lamb's wife, we've talked about that in the book of Revelation. This is the church. These are all those who know Jesus and his salvation. But it's very interesting now how the bride is revealed. You may think if you didn't know the text already that we're about to see a beautiful woman in her wedding dress on her wedding day. But instead, we see a picture of a city. And before I get into the city, let me just tell you how I see this. And Revelation is a difficult book. It's apocalyptic. We've kind of talked about that a lot in this series. But there's clearly the context is here's the bride. And it's going to be this, this new Jerusalem descending out of heaven. At the same time, it is a dwelling place of the bride. And at the same time, it is uh, the characteristic or descriptor of the new world. What it looks like in the new heavens and the new earth is not simply the city that comes out of heaven and lands somewhere on the planet and becomes the capital of the new earth. But rather, it's what the imagery conveys. It conveys to us things about this new world. This new world wherein righteousness dwells. So this vision of the city, just to sum that up, it tells us about ourselves in glory. It tells us about our habitation in glory. And it tells us about the new world in glory. It's thrice glorious in that way then. Come and see the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a high, to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God. Here comes the bride. The procession of the bride in this imagery. It is this city, the great city, the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God. It comes from heaven. It comes from God himself. This holy Jerusalem, this is spiritual Jerusalem. Various parts of scripture, we've seen this before, how that city Jerusalem here on earth was typological. It was a type of this. We have those in prophecy today and all who they they still put so much emphasis on that city Jerusalem over there in Israel that there's all this prophecy to be fulfilled there and God's place there and, and all this kind of stuff. And it, it misses the topology of Jerusalem. That Jerusalem was a sign, it was a type. Just like the sacrifices were a type. The, the old economy was a type. These signs pointing us to Christ. The city of Jerusalem was also a type. It was a sign. What did it point to? It pointed to this. Typical, typological Jerusalem pointed to the spiritual Jerusalem. In the type, in the city there in Israel, you had the place where the temple was built. And inside of the temple, you had the holies of holies and the Ark of the Covenant. And here is where the people would go to offer up sacrifices for sin. Here's where the people would congregate to celebrate many feast days and such. It was there that the presence of God was said to be the most immediate because of that temple and within that Ark of the Covenant. All of these things are signs pointing to the spiritual realities. The temple had far more to do with spiritual realities than it did the stones of its building. That city had far more to do with the rule and reign of God in Christ than simply the cobblestones of its streets or the walls round about it. It pointed us to this divine reality. There is a city of God. There is a city where righteousness dwells. There's a city that is a place of peace and perfection and holiness and joy. Hear this description. It came down from heaven. It is heavenly. From God, having the glory of God and her light 
like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear and crystal. So real quick reminder, I want to slip this in as we read these descriptions. I understand this as it's the bride. It describes the church. It also describes a city, a dwelling place, the dwelling place of God's people. It also, as we see the nations bringing their wealth into it, is a descriptor of the perfections of the new heavens and new earth that await. But each one of us should also, as a member of the bride, as a member of his church, see ourselves in this description. This description isn't just a descriptor of a dwelling place for you, but the bride of Christ is here. And as we are particular members of it, we see the beauty of the glorified saint in the redeemed cosmos. Having the glory of God. A city full of the glory of God could not be more glorious. There's nothing that can add to God's glory. You might say after that, after saying that it's having the glory of God, that the rest would be superfluous. But to unite our hearts in faith to him and in hope and in joy at the promises of the Lord for his people, we have these descriptors, these things to help us uh, see and comprehend God's glory in this place. Her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Can you picture that? The idea here, I mean, and I think I, we don't want to err in trying to read too deeply into some of these descriptions. I, I think it's given to be rather simple. It's not given to be something that's like there's some kind of hidden, hidden something in there. <coughs> it simply presents this beautiful light. <coughs> this beautiful light. And it's interesting that it's like a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. So light as it would pass through a crystal. Light and it was passed through a, a precious jewel. I don't quite see it exactly what that looks like. But think of the idea, I think, perhaps of light passing through glass. When you think of the beauty of stained glass or something like this. And in, in this case, the crystal is clear and the light shines through. And this was her light. So to sum that up, whatever you think that might look like, you know, whatever that imagery is drawing in your mind, the idea is it is glorious. It is a glorious light that is there. Later on, we'll see the Lord is the light of this place. So let me leave us with a light for now until we come back to it. But understand, it is a place of glorious light. Verse 12. And had a wall great and high and had 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and the names written thereon, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. And on the east gate, three gates and on the north, three gates on the south, three gates and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and in them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. This city has walls. Walls in the ancient world meant safety. Why did people gather together in city and build walls? You build walls to keep out invaders. A city without a wall in the ancient world was a doomed city would not take much for an army to come take that city. But if you build up walls, you can hold off an army of people, potentially an army much greater than the forces that you have inside those walls because they have to breach the walls to get in. So the idea of presenting this imagery in the form of a walled city is safety. 
The glory that awaits us in the new heavens and the new earth is a place of safety. It is a place where there is there is no concern from the enemy, no concern from invasion, no fear of what the elements may do, but it is a place of perfect tranquility and perfect safety. And on these walls, there were gates. Three gates on each of the four walls and the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. So the gates represent the 12 tribes of Israel. This is the old covenant church. So when we see the question, who is the bride? Who is the bride descending out of heaven? Well, we have the hall of faith from Hebrews, don't we? We have those believers who trusted in the promise of the Messiah before the coming of Jesus Christ and those from his coming who had belonged to those people who are part of Christ's church. <clears throat> in verse 14, it says, And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and in them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. We have there the apostles and the prophets, the foundation. What we have then illustrated here before us is the full body of the church. Here's one of those symbols of covenant theology. You know, unlike dispensationalism, which sees Israel and the church are two separate peoples with two separate plans and such, biblical Christianity says, no, there is one church. There has always been one church. They will say that we teach replacement theology. We replace Israel with a church, which is a gross misunderstanding of covenant theology. We don't replace Israel with a church. It is the church. It is one church. It's always been one church. And the Gentiles, the New Testament teaches, have been grafted in to this body. And we see that here in the imagery. It's not two cities for two peoples that come down out of heaven. It's not two brides. Christ isn't a polygamist. It is one city. It's one bride. It is one people of Jew and Gentile alike. That's a very New Testament idea too, isn't it? Notice, though, that it's the apostles of the Lamb who make up the foundation. We shouldn't skip over that too quickly. If the gates are Israel, that they open the way for the gospel. They are the precursor to Christ coming in the world and establishing the new covenant in his own blood. The apostles are foundational. And we see this in the scriptures when we speak about our faith, Ephesians 2.20. Speaking of the church there in Ephesus, Paul writes, it says, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So see, it's the apostles and the prophets, and this, that was first century prophets, and we'll see that in chapter three of Ephesians here in a minute. It is the foundation. So in other words, if you want to understand Israel, if you want to understand the 12 tribes, if you want to understand what God was doing, in the Old Testament, you have to understand what Jesus was doing and what the apostles were commissioned to do. It said that the new test, the new covenant is in the old concealed and the Old Testament is the old revealed as to what it means. The surest interpreter of scripture is Jesus. We have Christ's interpretation of the scriptures through the teaching of his appointed apostles. In Ephesians 3, 5, it speaks about those ages before the time of Jesus. It says, which in other ages, speaking about the mystery of the gospel and the Gentiles being grafted in, which boy, this is a picture of. The Gentile, the church is the foundation with the apostles and the 12 tribes as the gates. That mystery of the Gentile inclusion is, is what's spoken of here. It says in Ephesians 3, 5, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of this promise in Christ by the gospel. Oh, you see that glorious union of Jew and Gentile. 
You, you, you see the primacy of the revelation given to the apostles regarding God and his dealings with man and redemption. So it puts Christ as foundational. The teachings of the New Testament are foundational to understanding the old and everything else. In other words, if your teaching, if your understanding of the scripture is not built on Jesus and his understanding of the scriptures, old and new, then you're doing it wrong. That's not how a Christian is to read the Bible. And we see a lot of scholarship today that does that. What did this mean back to this Jew at this particular time? That's what this text meant. And it's completely disconnected from what Christ and the apostles may have said later. And to say that, that its meaning took on new meaning with Christ and the apostles is to basically deny the inspiration of the scripture. These are just people coming along with their different ideas. But if you believe the scripture's own testimony of itself, it is the inspired word of God. Scripture is God-breathed. It is the anupstus. And thus we use scripture to interpret scripture. The same God who wrote Genesis brought us the Gospels. The same God who brought the Mosaic Covenant instituted the New Covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. It is one book. Now we know the library, the Bible is a library of books. When I say it's one book, I mean it's one book in the sense that it is all about God's one purpose to save a people in Christ from Genesis to Revelation. It is unified. He is redeeming a people and it is one people. And it is one purpose and it is one plan through which he is redeeming people. And again, there's dispensational theology today doesn't see it that way. That, that is a deviation from what the Bible's teaching, how Christians have historically understood the text and what the text, again, does affirm. We see that here in the imagery. So think just one moment about what that says to our souls. If God is revealed, it reveals to us the bride of Christ as Jew and Gentile. Here is the full body of the elect descending from heaven into the new world. <clears throat> God's purpose is all about Christ and that redemption. Sometimes we need simplicity, don't we? Sometimes we need simplicity in life, simplicity of purpose. There's a lot of things that can confuse us, a lot of things that can distract. And when we come back to, okay, what is the big picture? What is the main thing about scripture? It, well, it's one thing. And it's always one thing. From Genesis to Revelation, it's one thing. And what is it? God's purpose in Christ to redeem his bride. That's it. And that's why we saw back there in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, when it said, and I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. We had mentioned there, it, heaven and earth flees from the face of Christ because he is what everything is about. He is the purpose of everything. And, and next to him, it's like everything else fades away. We should live life like that. When we're confronted with temptation in this world, when we're confronted with fear, when we're beset on by our enemies to remember it is all about Christ. Nothing is significant apart from Christ. He is the reason for everything. And God in his mercy has called me in Christ. God in his mercy brought me to faith and repentance in Christ. And I benefit from all of the realities that are true in regards to being in Christ. Where does fear go when you believe like that? When our faith lays hold of Christ and his benefits and, and that acknowledgement that, well, there's a lot of things I don't know. There's a lot of things I don't know about economics. I thought this economic system we currently live under would have exploded because of the runaway debt and spending and the Ponzi scheme of the American dollar. And get me going about a lot of things in the world today. I thought it would have collapsed before now. 
I thought we had a financial crisis much worse before now. I don't understand it all. It's complicated. Nobody really knows how it's going to come down and when it's going to come down, but all systems ultimately do. I don't understand the depth and breadth of all the different ideologies out there, the various philosophies. I don't understand key things about being Robert. The challenges in my own life, things are so complicated. You know, do you ever have people come to you for counsel? And if, if you have any amount of wisdom at all, you realize how little you have. And it's like, well, I don't have the answers, but maybe here's some things to think about. You know that other people's situation is very complicated. You're not a fly on the wall to observe everything in their life and really give feedback as somebody who actually gets everything that's going on. There's a lot of unknowns in life. There's a lot of uncertainties. There's a lot of vulnerability then in our ignorance. And the person who's the worst off is the one who isn't aware of any of that. They think they, think they know everything. They've got it all under control and they have the answers for everything. And they're like, they're like a blind person walking through a minefield, skipping as they go. Being, being that sort of know-it-all doesn't work in the long term, as we have observed over the years. Sometimes I've been the one skipping through the minefield. Simplicity can be something good to lay hold of. But simplicity and ignorance is not what we're talking about, but simplicity and something that I can, I can lay hold of this and it's real and it's true. And that is this reality of God's one purpose to save the people in Christ and my place in that. Whatever else I don't get, whatever else I don't understand, whatever else may be confusing or perplexing, whatever fears they may be, Brothers and sisters, we can lay hold to this one purpose of God to save a people in Christ. And ultimately, that is the big picture. But one must be in Christ to lay hold of that. For the rest, lay hold of the judgment we've already passed through in Revelation chapter 20. But as Christians, this should give us hope. This unified plan and purpose in Christ. Oh, the city descending with the 12 tribes and the apostles of the Lamb. Verse 15. And he talked with me, or he who talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof and the wall thereof. And the city lieth four square and length is as large as breadth. So a giant square. <laughs> Is, is the sizing of it. He measured the city, okay, it's, it's, he measured the city with a reed, 12,000 furlongs. <coughs> the length and breadth and height of it are equal. That is about 1,400 miles on each side. So, again, I, I don't think this is saying in an apocalyptic narrative that there's this literal city that's uh, 4,000 mile squared cube that comes to rest on the planet. <coughs> it's representative of a thing. But what does that language convey? This place is massive. This is a big place. There's plenty of room in the new world. There are plenty of places to dwell in the coming world. It won't be overpopulated. You have the fear of some people. We're going to overpopulate the earth. Boy, the fear of overpopulation has not helped this planet very much because now we have complete national economies on the brink of absolute and utter collapse because by the end of the decade, in some places, there'll be more people in retirement than working. All prior ages combined. Now, this place is a place with plenty of space, comfort, glorious majestic when we think of a city and the glory of a city the size of that city is part of what one looks at for how awesome that city is like for instance new york city when people think about new york city what's so special about new york city as say opposed to atlanta well it's a whole lot bigger 
It's a really big city, a lot of development, a lot of cultivation. Personally, I'll take the smaller city in the trees over the jungles of New York. But the idea of the size of that city is part of how we assess the glory of the city. <clears throat> so that language here is conveying that. This is a glorious place. This is an established place. It says, he measured the wall thereof, 140 and four cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper. And the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. So now we get into these descriptions using precious stones. So let me just look at this briefly. Um, the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth of emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth uh, sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysosphorus, the eleventh adjacinth, the twelfth an amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. Now there are those who have taken these different uh, precious stones and tried to find some significance to each. Like there's a message in each of these stones. <clears throat> I personally think that's rather wrong-headed because when approaching the text like that, you can pretty much make up anything. And people who try to give significance to each stone because of the type of stone pretty much do make up everything. And you can just read various authors who do that and just see how widely they vary from one another. So that can't be the point of this, that we're to sit down and start doing um, scientific work on the imagery of the various different stones here. And even then there are some translations, I'm reading the KJV, there are some translations that have different stones in different places because it interprets the Greek word differently. And there's, there's valid room to say, hey, this stone may be talking about this instead of that. The point of mentioning all these isn't to break one down, each one down into some mysterious message that needs to be revealed from it, but these are precious stones. This place is precious. It is perfect. And when we talk about a city and the glory of the city, we look at those things pertaining to it. Size we've already mentioned is one of them. Others can be architecture and monumental developments. I mean, who has not heard of the Colossus of Rhodes, for instance? How about the Statue of Liberty? How about the Taj Mahal? How about the hanging gardens of Babylon? And so forth and so on. We have these cities that their fame gets known in part by the wonders that they possess, the great achievements in the structures that have been built in those places and, and certain buildings and structures become synonymous with a city and its glory. So here for the heavenly city, you have it just completely decked out in all of these precious stones. Again, to signify its glory. Talk about a place with the wonders of the world. The idea here is the seven wonders of the world can't shake a stick at this. This city is more glorious than anything man has ever done before. I love the description of the, the gates. Uh, the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl. So, you ever been pearl shopping? I guess I don't see people wearing pearls as much lately, like the pearl necklace and stuff. Oh, Stephanie's got something that looks like pearls. How do you value a pearl? What's an inexpensive pearl? What's a more expensive pearl? Well, with pearls, the size matters. A small pearl is worth much less than a great big pearl. And this is presenting a pearl as like the whole gate. Pretty big pearl. So don't get in your head, how does a round pearl fit? It must be like a great big massive hobbit hole. No, it's not what the imagery is trying to draw here. It's that here you have something that is so unlike to be big enough to ever be a massive gate to a city of this size, and yet here you have a pearl for a whole gate. Again, to reveal its glory, its uniqueness, its splendor. 
This language is to present the heavenly city as something more glorious than man has ever conceived and ever imagined and ever will do in this world. That's the idea that's being conveyed in the language. When you think about a city that you would like to live in, some people say, you know, Atlanta's okay. I might like Austin better. Some people say, and I'll, I definitely don't want to be in Detroit. Uh, you know, people evaluate cities. And we have these things online, you know, like the 12 best places to live in America. This is presenting imagery that's like, this is the best place to live throughout all of creation. This is like the place. If you could like have a dwelling to be in the place, like only the elite of the elite of the elite can be here. This place is perfect. It's got everything. That's the idea. This place has everything. And it's interesting because as I said at the beginning of the message, it's not just about the place that we dwell in, in glory, but being the bride descending out of heaven, it's also a description of that bride of the church itself. What the church looks like in this vision. And I also said that as a member of that church, you and I each are part of that. What does that then say to what we will be like in that place? If we are likened to the most glorious city that can ever be conceived and ever will be, and we are likened unto that. That's hard to get my head around. But it must be true because we are glorified in Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ, the scripture says. Think about what a blessing then you will be at that time. When we have realized our full redemption in the new heavens and the new earth, oh, what we will be. And not only what we will be, because as we're looking at not just individuals, but the church, what others will be. If the city is the most awesome city ever and that can ever be conceived and ever will be conceived, it has the wonders of creation, the ultimate wonders of creation of this city. It is the place to be. And it also illustrates the bride. What must his people be like? Not just what will I be like in this land. What will you be like? What is it going to be like to be in fellowship and be neighbors with the most awesome people that ever could be. I mean, the most loving people, the kindest people, the most encouraging people, the most beautiful people, and so forth and so on. What could that be like? I mean, I'm more excited about that than me in that. So everybody around me is going to be, it's like you talk about who you want to hang around with. What kind of people do you want to associate with? What kind of people add to your life? And, you know, we kind of have thorns and brambles and we can say mean things and we can be thoughtless and, and all of these things, but not there. Not there when we realize that full redemption in Christ, in glorification, there in that place, the neighbors are perfect. I've had to sell two homes in my lifetime, and in both, well, I've sold more than that, but the two homes I'm thinking about, the reason I sold them when I did was neighbor problems. <clears throat> Had one with a punk teenager, and he was a punk teenager, would scream across the road horrible things at my wife while she'd be out working and stuff. Somebody just wanted to go wring his neck, but I'd wind up in a jail cell. And then another had a dog that she just wouldn't ever get to stop barking. It would bark all night and shake the windows. After a couple months of that, I'm like, we are out of here. Completely thoughtless to everybody else. You may know the experience of a bad neighbor. There's no bad neighbors there. You think about the people who I live in fellowship with, they're perfect. They couldn't be a better neighbor. That's exciting. You think about all your relationship struggles in this life, then the problem of people. I, some of you are extroverts. You gotta have people. You gotta. I, I 
it, with my daughters, the two still at home. Summer's my extrovert. I can preach about them now because they're not here. Summer's my extrovert. It's got to have friends. Got to be doing the social thing. Ava, she's just kind of like, yeah, whatever. I'm an introvert. I, I'm not real big. Oh, I got to have people and all this, whatever. Um, but nobody really wants to be a hermit to have nobody, even introverts. You know, when I think about, I could just be a hermit, I could just live in a cave and just have nothing or nobody. No, not really. No, God made us for fellowship. He made us to be in fellowship one with another. And this place describing perfect people, the bride coming down out of heaven, must be truly wonderful. It's a wonderful place. It is glorious. It is perfect. It is the wonder of all worlds. It is the place to be. And it illustrates people who are the most awesome, loving, kind, thoughtful, selfless, all the good things you could think of who are that way all around you. Who wouldn't want to be there? Well, if you were, if you were a, Real estate agent, you had houses in your inventory. It's like, you know what? There's one neighborhood you want to really look at. It's this one. <laughs> and in some ways, you could make a gospel illustration from that. The one preaching Christ, we're a real estate agent. Hey, look, you're looking for a place to put your soul. You're looking for a place to dwell eternally. You want to look at this neighborhood. The other one's really bad. The other one is like really, really bad. No one wants to live there. We have two places. But there's more. There's more. The street of the city was gold as transparent glass. I didn't read that, but it goes in with everything else we just said. Verse 22. So there's more than that. Perfect place. Glorious place. Perfect people. Glorious fellowship and love. But wait, there's more. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of sun, neither of the moon to shine in it for the glory of God did lighten it. And the lamb is the light thereof. The city would still have a major problem and perhaps lose its most desirable status if it was only the most glorious and wonderful place ever and ever could be. And if it only just had people who were perfect and selfless and loving and kind and healthy and such, the end. Oh, it's missing something. It would be on its way to decay without God. As a matter of fact, it couldn't be those things without God. So here we have the Lord. There's no temple there. No temple. God himself and the Lamb, Jesus, is the temple of it. What's the significance of that? What is the purpose of the temple? We go back to the old economy. The temple was that place in that cultic system. When I say cultic, I don't mean it in a negative sense. I mean in, in that sacred practice, in that system and what have you, where God's presence would be manifest, where this is a place that you would go to do certain things in regard to your service and worship to the Lord. You'd have to go to Jerusalem to get to it. There's no temple in this city, meaning there's no, when it comes to wanting to be an intimate relationship with God, when you want to be close to his manifestation in the world, we know he's omnipresent, he's everywhere, but as far as like his manifestation and the sense of his presence and such, there's no place to do a pilgrimage to in this city. You know, to really get close to God here and all, there's, a, there's this glorious heavenly temple right smack in the middle of the city and you can go there anytime you want. It's not the idea. He's there. He's there. So there's never a place where there's more or less presence of the imminency of Christ. This is, this is of God is the air we breathe. He is everywhere and he is immediate. Now it's true there Jesus, as far as his, his human flesh, his human body is localized because that's part of the creation, his humanity. But 
In spirit, even Jesus, though his body is localized, he is present everywhere. No place to go, no pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Can we fathom that? A reality in a world wherein God's presence is imminent at all times and sensibly so. Because again, he's imminent now, but he's not sensibly so. Meaning I always sense that imminence and that fellowship right here at my side. We have varying degrees of that here. There, it's dwelling in the immediate presence of God in the midst of all of this, wherever we happen to be. The sun, it says, doesn't need to shine, neither moon, for the glory of God didn't lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Some people would say, in the new heavens and the new earth, there's no sun and moon, and that's what this is saying. That's not the point. The point isn't that there's no sun or moon in the new heavens and the new earth, or that there's not other stars and galaxies and all that kind of stuff. That's not the point the text is making. The point that the text is making is that the glory of God is such that there's no need for sun and moon. Which, what does sun and moon do? They give us light. Light comes upon the earth from the sun, and at nighttime, as long as you have a moon in the sky and no clouds, you have light from the moon. There's not a need because God is the light. And this isn't simply about light like it's flowing from these light bulbs so we can see in the dark. We know, like John in the Gospel of John, light is used in, as, as an illustration. Jesus is that light that shined in the darkness and the darkness comprehended it not. Light in the scripture is used to illustrate illumination of truth. Darkness is to not see the truth, to walk in spiritual blindness. It's not about literal light beams. It's about the ability to discern truth from error. Is about to discern what is real and what is not real. And the Bible uses this language of light and darkness to convey those ideas. So here, it's a much bigger idea here being presented than simply, hey, we don't need light bulbs. No, it's here. It is a place of perfect truth. That's the idea. There will be no lie there. There will be no falsity there. There will not be that which is contrary to truth, but we will be in the very face of truth intimately and immediately forever. Maybe that's why one of the reasons the people there are so kind and perfect and loving and great neighbors. There is no lie. Then verse 24, and the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. Again, some people say, well, who's not, who lives outside of the city and who lives inside of the city? Again, that's not the point. The point here about the nations and the kings bringing their glory and honor into it is peace on earth. Again, as I said before, this city, it's about the bride of Christ, us as members of it. It's about dwell, the dwelling place of the bride of Christ in his presence and together in fellowship. And now it's about what the new earth looks like. It's what does this coming world look all, all of this is it's much bigger than just a big square city that's taking the imagery and missing what it is conveying to us it now presents a world a whole world that is in union with god in fellowship with him praising him honoring him all bringing their glory and honor to him and forever, in a sense, heaven and earth flee away from that face. It's all about the glory of Christ. In verse 25, it says, And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. Again, not about light or darkness in the literal sense, but why do you close the gate of a city at night? Why do you even have gates? Well, we mentioned that when we talked about having walls. You have gates to keep bad guys out. You keep the enemy out. 
And a city at night in the ancient world would close its gates at night. The gates wouldn't be open until morning. Why? Because at night you can't see everything and it allows an invading force the opportunity under stealth of darkness to come charging through your gate. So instead of exposing the city to a sneak attack, you would close the gates at night because the guards on the walls can't see as well out there. In this place, the gates are never closed. There's no darkness. What is being conveyed is there is no threat. Though it has walls that symbolize its safety, its harmony, its peace, the gates are always open, symbolizing it's not because there's an enemy that its walls are strong enough to defeat. There are no enemies. There is no one to worry about in a sneak attack. There is no invader. It is a place of glorious peace and joy with absolutely no worry of calamity or evil, nothing to bring tears, nothing to bring suffering, but perfect. Just as earlier we read in Revelation, all tears being wiped away. And then verse 27, and there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Oh yeah, the gates can be open because no defiler, no blasphemer, no sinner, no worker of abominations can enter into it. Why? <laughs> because they don't exist in that place. God's already dealt with them and sent them to their eternal punishment. <clears throat> the new heavens and the new earth are truly a place wherein righteousness dwells. There's no enemy to be concerned about because there are no enemies. That's what waits for you. What are you worried about now then? I find this truth very comforting in a world with so many uncertainties where calamity just seems like it's, it's around the next corner. And I, I know I'm a, the consummate, uh, what do you call it? Contrarian. You know, I, I, I tend to be a contrarian in my views of things and I don't have this positive outlook on where everything is going. I tend to think, you know what? It looks like the ship is sinking, not, not rising. I don't think we're progressing as the progressives say. I think we are devolving into something far, far worse. I think there's difficult times ahead. We all have our own personal trials and our own personal struggles, our own personal battles with sin, our disappointments, loss. But the scriptures set this vision before us. Wait. When we think about what the Bible says about wait for the Lord. Wait. So I've waited so long for God to answer me. Keep waiting. We can get real discouraged in this life when we feel like God isn't answering us on time. But what if God never gave you any good positive answers in this life and simply is holding that out for you, saying, wait for it? Would that be enough? It should be. Should it not? Should not the promise of this reality and this eternity Give us all the hope that we need to wait if God said nothing more to us or did nothing good for us remaining in this life. And the reality is God does hear us in this life. God does bless us. God does offer his protection and his fellowship and answers our prayers and gives us good things and is merciful. God does. But if God didn't, if God just left you to the worst that all life has to offer and that's going to be your life, but he's holding forth this promise still saying, I just want you to wait for this. Would it not be worth it? I think it's an awesome truth. I think it's a glorious truth and reality and so precious to our faith and so powerful to sanctify us in our perseverance that we press on in the faith, that we keep our eyes looking for our high calling in Christ and knowing where we will be one day and knowing that that will be our eternity. The sufferings of this life, 
I mean, my goodness, his life is over like that. We, we live in a blink and are gone. And yet we sometimes feel and act like this is it. We get so down, so depressed. And so we don't have to be with this set before us. Why are we worried about anything? When God has put this before us, there is nothing to worry about. So let us lay hold of Christ with joy. Let us look forward to that time and that place, which is a certainty for us. It is God's purpose in everything in the face of Christ. Let us look for it. Let us long for it. Let us dream of the day to our encouragement when we will together be there and love each other in a way that we can't even comprehend in this life, even as we strive for it as a Christian church. Let us pray.